0: Rock and roll grad school with your hosts, Heidi Edquist and Luke Poling, Yankee Hotel Podcast.
1: Hello, kitties. I'm just we're, gonna leave. We're here. not we're not gonna have a good time. We know or... we are gonna have a good time. Oh. Um, I unfortunately this is one of these interviews that due to circumstances beyond our control, you were not able to participate. Yes. And I'm not just saying this because you were here, but I feel like you would have brought a lot to the table for the conversation.
0: Wow, that never happens.
1: I know. Um, And I won't say that often, but.
0: No, but thank God you did for once. Yes,
1: exactly. Um, But we are talking with uh, Michael Lockwood from Lions and Ghosts, which was a band that I didn't. I feel like I had heard the name.
0: Mm
1: hmm. Um, A. Mid-80s pop rock band from Southern California. And as soon as I heard the first single, the first track on the record, it was just sort of like, I I would have loved this band in high school. Uh Um, But they are back together. There's new music. We are talking about the reissue of their first record, which is a great chance to get to a bunch of stuff. Um, And I think you will, do you listen to the shows if you're not on them? I do. Okay. Um, I think you will enjoy this one. Well, good. Yes.
0: Yes, I do listen to them. Now, I like to know what I missed.
1: Right. Make sure I don't say anything about you. Right. What was the thing you sent me that we were going to discuss? There um, are so many
0: things we've been I know.
1: To discuss. I think this one was about uh, the connection between Cameron Crowe and, uh, is it B.B. Buell?
0: Oh, yeah. I just discovered that today. Thanks and, to B.B.'s Instagram. Do
1: you know what magazine this is?
0: Uh, it said in her post, I can't remember, but how I didn't know this because A, I read her book, Mm. B, I obviously I'm a mega fan of the film.
1: Right. should we explain what the hell we're talking about? Yeah. Probably a good
0: idea. And the fact that not only, okay, go ahead. No, no, no. No, go ahead.
1: No, No. I was going to say just to, just to explain what we're talking about. Yes. uh, This article in magazine TBD is about. Uh, BB's connection with Cameron Crowe in the '70s, which if he was the William Miller, which we had to look up earlier to find out the name, his, of his last character. Name.
0: Yes. yes.
1: If he was the William Miller, that she is sort of the Penny Lane.
0: Well, there's an article that was in Talk Magazine. Okay, that says as much because it's an interview with, uh, several
1: with both years of them. Years ago,
0: yes. Yeah, wow. that's why I sent you all four of those pictures because if you zoom in, you can read the article. And it literally says as much. And then Jason Lee's character, mm-hmm. whose name was Jeff Beebe in the movie. He was the made, lead
1: singer of Stillwater. Yes,
0: remember. yes. Is named after her. And there's oh. these pictures of them, like the you know real Cameron Crow, Right. And real Beebe when they were there. And like he's got these post-its and there's one where it says, uh, this photo was taped to my wall while writing Almost Famous. Baby's pure joy was infectious to everyone around her. And it talks about like how she she was just like Penny Lane. Every time she walked in a room, she lit up the room just by entering. Like there's this whole like, it is very clearly that she was the inspiration.
1: That's fascinating. Fascinating that we didn't know this. Fascinating that probably a lot of people are screaming at their phone right now saying, you idiots. I know all sorts of fascination
0: right yeah but it's fascinating
1: it is um well that's lovely and i feel like i need to watch the movie again
0: uh you really haven't watched it i watch it like every day
1: I i haven't
0: I watch it so wow. often. It's ridiculous. What yet is it I about... still forgot William Miller's name. Right.
1: Well, what is it about the film for you? I mean, obviously the storyline. Is there some sort of Billy Crude Up fantasy that has yet to be?
0: I mean, or... he is pretty smoking hot in that movie.
1: Right. Yes.
0: But. Um,
1: is it no, just the it's... era? Is yeah. Yeah. It... Mm. It's the, music the mood. Of okay. It's,
0: well, I mean, straight out of Troy, Michigan. That is where. That is my truly my hometown.
1: Right. Right.
0: Troy, Michigan. So, class of '93.
1: Yeah, I need to get you a Fever Dog shirt or something.
0: Oh my god, I totally need a Fever Dog shirt. <laughs> <laughs> I need the one, the shirt where it's like Russell in the front. <laughs> oh, I would wear it everywhere. That is. Um, that shirt has to be available.
1: It should be. If it's not we need to make it yeah yes
0: and the Um, the, i think the script is so good in that film there's so many great lines true and i do still think i would be russell and you would
1: be william that sounds about right Mm mm-hmm your mind now when you hear this first uh lions and ghosts record
2: um well i you know it's funny i listened to it a few months ago uh yeah two or three months ago i you know pulled out the vinyl and dusted that off and put that on and started thinking about it and wondered you know how relevant is the production value how you know how's the songwriting holding up and i and i don't just do that with you know lions and ghosts or something that i've worked on i do, i do that with everything all the time like I, a lot of people do it's like you put on a zeppelin record and you go yeah it's timeless it still holds up today okay. so that's something that goes through my mind because i'm so fascinated by production and everything and in listening to that first lions and ghosts record i went you know we we have to make this happen because it's a shame that it's not streaming on any of the services and um, i felt like you know, it's still a great-sounding record, and and the songs are are solid songs, and it's and it's a fun project. Um, and I just felt like, you know, we, we need to to make this happen again. So, in listening back to it, I'm still very proud of it. Uh, it brings back more fond memories now than some of those other memories that you know happen right. when you're 24 years old and you're all vying for whatever position you feel you must have but uh right yeah i i i feel good about what we've done and i'm happy to put that back out in the world for more people to hear
1: it seems like it's been a lifetime of production work that you've done since then you happy with the way the guitar sounds the way everything else sounds or, or does it just feel like a completely different person at this point
2: it feels like a completely different person that's a great question actually it's uh when I listen to that I think, oh that's definitely me playing guitar, but I hear I hear places that were just budding then that probably I've explored a lot more over the years. And so mm-hmm. um it it is interesting. Sometimes I have to think about it, I'm like, wait, I pretty much did all the guitar so that isn't someone else cuz some things don't sound like me in retrospect, but uh mm-hmm. yeah, it's uh it, it's interesting to go back and hear those early sort of orchestrations and productions of pieces.
1: Yeah. And I mean, I, I agree with you. It does sound timeless. I know in one interview, you sort of referred to Lions and Ghosts as the big star of that era that you guys, which I, I understand why you're hanging your head. It's just like, yeah, oh, no I did not make the allusion to us and big star.
2: Yeah, I know. And thank you for noticing. Because when I wrote that, I went, it's fair in my mind to say something like that because I was a late bloomer to big star and they greatly influenced me in the songwriting and guitar parts and production and things. But, you know, I didn't discover big star until uh, some point in the eighties long, mm. long after that. And, and what was at some point much later than that, I finally heard the first Chris Bell record that, that had never come out, you know, so I, I didn't really want to make that comparison, but I do feel like there's a portion of that that there's truth in and that we made a great record amongst many, 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 many signings that were happening in Hollywood in the eighties. And the, it was a, just a, a frenzy. It was LA's time again, you know, like right. for Seattle or New York or San Francisco. So um, I really feel like we made a great record. And then we made bad choices and maybe some of that is true for big star. They made some incredibly great music. And at the time it was completely unappreciated and lost in whatever shuffle was. I can't remember what year the first record came out. Was it like 73 ish? I think so. That sounds right. Yeah. yeah. Memory. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, but I mean,
1: it, I definitely understand what you're saying. Um, it, you know, th- just the fact that, it seems like this record is sort of, and and this band has been bubbling under for a while, you know. When um, the PR folks reach out to us about talking with you, you know they they play they have a poker face with so many of their clients, where they're just like, "We have this." Per-. Lions and Ghost, Wendy RP was just like, "Oh my god, I loved this band when I was in high school. They meant so much to me, and just that enthusiasm." And I remember having those own bands in my own high school years where you're just like, these folks can do no wrong. This is, right. this is what I want to be when I grow up. Right. And so I definitely see that in that big star comparison of like listening to that record going, man, if I could just get those Alex Shilton, Chris Bell harmonies, yeah. everything would be right with the world.
2: That's, that's right.
1: And you guys were coming of age and doing all this at, a, like you mentioned, a really fascinating time in music, especially music in LA I noticed on your website, I believe it was, maybe Instagram, you had a picture of a show at, I think it was the Roxy, where it was you guys in Guns N' Roses was right. opening?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Now, having heard Appetite and having heard your record, these two <laughs> don't seem like this is the chocolate and peanut butter <laughs> metaphor time.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: What the hell was that backstage like?
2: <laughs> oh... I actually don't think that I can say that on your <laughs> podcast. Um, that is one of the most interesting backstage times for sure. Um, but yeah, you know.
1: All right, let's put it this way. What does the crowd for that show look like?
2: Well, if you can remember, I don't know how old you are, but you know, if you think back, of, I-, I liken it to, there was a time period in American music where it didn't matter what the genre was, it all got played on the same radio station. So you could easily hear a folk song, a country song, a disco song, a new wave song, a slightly punk song, a hard rock song, all in the same couple of hours on on radio in America. And that happened throughout the 70s, uh, largely the 80s. And then I felt like it got it started uh, spreading apart in L.A. In the early to late 80s. There was a lot of different scenes happening. There was certainly the hair metal scene Mm -hmm. with uh, Boys and and Rat and and all that. It's funny, all these bands were all friendly and all friends. There was never any oddness to any of that. So I think everybody was trying to do their thing. Everybody was trying to write great songs. Everybody was trying to get a deal so they could make an album. And so there was a lot of camaraderie. You know, some of those shows were a little bizarre, you know, having Guns N' Roses at that time and us, except for that, In that day, well, these guys all look like they're, you know, rejects from the Rolling Stones circa 67. So we kind of looked the same at some point. Musically, things were really different. And the shows, every show that I can remember was always well-received with whatever the bands were. It was always, it was just a good night of entertainment. And surely there's, uh, you know, a large chunk of people there to see a certain band and the crowd sort of rotate a bit, but I, that was a memorable show. I mean, I think, if I remember correctly, that was the night that Guns N' Roses got signed to Geffen. So wow. that was a, that was a like a, okay, we all have a chance. That's what it felt like at that moment. And we, and we were signed not that long after that. So there was a bit of a feeding frenzy in LA where you know they were signing pop bands, rock bands. Uh, we sort of evolved from some sort of gothy thing that became much more pop, and then slightly Americana. But that's a different conversation. Um, but uh, yeah, it was it was a thriving scene, and there was a lot of support amongst all the musicians. And when you finally get to make this record,
1: was this your first real studio time, your first album work?
2: For me personally and for the band, it was the biggest chunk and most professional project we'd all done. We had done a lot of home demos, a lot of recordings in the rehearsal studio. We did have a great experience recording with this guy, Dennis Mackay, who's done a million great records at, and a bulk of those were all in the sort of mid to later '70s. So mm-hmm. I think for one of the labels, we ended up doing a set of demos with him in the studio and actually taking some time, albeit a couple days. But prior to this album, we didn't have any serious uh, studio experience. And did you guys feel like the kind of the blinders
1: were off or the restrictors were off, and you could do anything? Because I mean, there's there's strings on this record. These all these, you know, it, it sort of seems like to the, you know, un, uninformed listener going, it sounds like they're kind of getting to fulfill every impulse and every alleyway they want to try to go down and see how it sounds.
2: Uh, nobody ever said no. I don't know. Was, <laughs> I don't know if that was good or bad, but I, right. I, I, do feel, I do feel for that first record, it was pretty good in that we had explored a lot of different things, and that is a great snapshot of where we were at that time. So, uh, you know, we were uh, trying to write the best songs we could write and fulfill like all the produ- production wishes we had in our heads. And one of those was uh, working with Tony Visconti, working with Peter Walsh, and um, it 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 all really melded together. There was a lot of synchronicity. Unbeknownst to us, we when we finally got the uh, green light to work with uh, Peter Walsh, uh, next thing we know, we're booked into Tony Visconti's studio in mm. uh, the Good Earth in Soho, and there we had tried to contact him about maybe doing string arrangements. So we get in there and we're in the studio every day, and Tony's around all the time. And at some point, he came in listening. And then his manager walked in the next afternoon and said, Tony wants to do the strings. We're like, we're doing strings now, people. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean. That was, that was an amazing experience. And truly no one ever said no. We had great A&R at the time and we had really supportive people around us uh, who wanted us to fulfill that sort of dream record that we were trying to make on the stage
1: so it sounds like in that regard that went pretty well was that a challenge was that a, a difficult thing or is it more of just like trying to figure out how to do what you want
2: uh no it it felt uh, it felt easy and hard it mm-hmm. felt it felt easy because i think we were all on the same page of how we wanted to be represented sonically and um But not having experience really played into that. There was a lot of experimentation. There was a lot of like, I mean, you remember being 24. There's a lot of figuring out who you are. Then -hmm. there's who you are as a player. And then who you are to these other three people that you're essentially married to. Yeah, It's like having three other wives. So, you know, it was, there are lots of difficult moments in the studio, but I feel like, some of those helped we were slightly competitive you know it uh it was a process but the process except for a few incidents went really really well that record was an easy record to make as compared to our second well i was wondering
1: about that how the dynamic in the band changes did that record that first record change things restructure the kind of dynamic that you guys had as a stage as a live act
2: I think so yeah I think that's pretty fair and it's a lot easier to look at now listening to de- I have a lot of demos of everything prior to the second record and there was a changing of personnel it just it became we started chasing our own tail sadly mm-hmm. you know I think we made a good solid record we had strong support in southern california because we played constantly we opened for everybody and their mother especially uh the overseas acts so we were building a great fan base and then we put that record out and we saw still a lot of support from southern california and most of the most of the west mm-hmm. but not really anywhere else and so then comes you know doubt starts racing in and it's like oh we've we have to rethink this mm-hmm. instead of i really do feel like we should have stuck to our guns and and I think it would have worked better for us in the long run because the doubt just made us just do this constantly. And that's why musically it changed. That's sonically it changed. That's why members started changing. And that's why eventually the whole thing just stopped. It's
1: interesting looking at your uh, discography after Lions and Ghosts, (laughs) because in many ways I feel like if, Listening to the record, I mean, you could have convinced me John Bryan produced this thing. And then you look ahead and you're working with Amy Mann and John Bryan and all these folks who, I mean, sonically, it sounds so much the same where it's like you guys were on maybe different coasts. I guess John Bryan had probably moved to L.A. at that point and was kind of doing that same thing.
2: Yeah, I think John, was, I think John came out late 80s, if I if I remember right, because they were working with uh, it's so incestuous, you know, out here. like <laughs> they, they were working with uh Tony Berg uh, for a Till Tuesday record. And at that point till Tuesday had evolved into John Bryan and Buddy Judge and Michael mm-hmm. was still there. But um, obviously our second record ended up being produced by Tony Berg. So I never met amy or john through those circles but i have a feeling that if i looked at john's record collection and i looked at amy's collection and my collection and a lot of my friends i think we have a lot of similar albums in our collection and 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 probably influence influences all to sort of head that direction whatever direction that is but it it is similar i i agree with you there is some odd thing i was just so happy to end up working with amy
1: what was that collaboration like? I mean, you you played on so many of her records.
2: It, I mean, it's it's interesting. It it was an amazing time always. Um, I consider her one of my best friends. She was a great teacher, a great friend, and she was so easy about things when you know, in the studio it was always sort of anything goes. Let's try it. What have we got to lose, right? Mm-hmm except for hours and hours and hours (laughs) of video time. Uh, But, um, you know, it just was always evolving. We spent a lot of time on the road together. Uh, We spent a lot of time doing TV shows and promo tours, a lot of time in the studio. And eventually there was this progression where I ended up producing her and working with her on uh, Lost in Space. And really, she was so willing, unlike... I've had the pleasure of working with a lot of artists and some people have a definite idea. It's, it has to be that way. And I understand mm-hmm. that. And Amy was so game to just let's go, where are we going to go with this? And she was, she was really willing and she let everyone really contribute to her sonic palette. So that it was, and still is an amazing relationship. I just, um, I don't know if you know, uh, uh, My label, Sparkle Plenty, is going to release an album by Bird Streets. And I don't know if you did not know that, no. So that's all coming um, and coming soon. Um, I had uh, done a song with the singer Bird Streets, uh, John Broder, called Unkind. And so I had Amy play bass on it. (laughs) And then I had uh, Buddy Judge sing on it. I had Patrick Warren, who spent years working with Amy as well, do the string arrangements for it. And we just finished a second song that's not going to be on his album, and he plays bass on that. So we're still, you know, we're still doing stuff together. It's uh, it's really fun to have her come to the studio and play because she's an incredible musician.
1: And it seems, again, if, uh, like you said, comparing it to a relationship uh, with being in a band and then having somebody like that, you can have this years and decades-long conversation musically and both i'm assuming grow a little bit especially if you're you know like you said on lost in space producing for her just getting to sort of see what that relationship is like that back and forth between the two of you
2: yeah that we have some big chunks of time where we didn't but it's interesting that eight nine years can go by and a phone call later you're in the studio together you're talking about the same things that you always talk about <laughs> which is relationships either your own or someone else's or you're talking about great new music or whatever. It feels, you know, she came over to the studio just, a, I guess, a couple months ago. We sat down, started drinking coffee, started talking, and eventually we we're like, oh, shit, we got to get working now. <laughs> so we started working on the, the track. And it's it's still as if you're 32 years old or whatever. You're still in that same mode. And that that's a really interesting and cool thing. It was... It, just to bounce back to the lines and go sing. That's what it was like writing the new song with uh, Rick Parker that we're releasing um, in a couple weeks.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, and about that, I mean, that's, was that conversation? The, no, I mean, it, it makes perfect sense. And I was going to sort of bring us around to that where we were going, but I mean, it seems, what was that kind of like sort of uh, in some form getting the band back together?
2: Yeah. Huh? was incredibly bizarre um i think I'd, I'd seen rick a couple times i think he came to a birthday party i had uh, 10 years ago or something but we we hadn't worked together since uh, i think right after Lions and ghosts he and i got together in, in a rehearsal studio for a day and just played some ideas and it, we never nothing ever became of it um but oddly what happened was uh before the pandemic happened, um, I'd gotten a call to do a session from a, uh, a local LA artist and he said, can you play guitar on these two songs or whatever? And he sent me some demos and I said, yeah, I'd love that. That'd be great. And then right before I was gonna go in the studio with him, he said, we're going to the studio, blah, blah, blah. Well, it turns out it's Rick Parker's studio. And that you know that was in Hollywood. And so I grabbed some stuff. I went over there and I walked in the room. It was as if no time had gone by at all. We sat down, we started chatting, we were recording, and we had a really incredibly great time together. And, you know, when you're in a band, we talked, I talked about it being like being married to three other people in that case well you know we didn't have the greatest breakup so it was a little strange at first and uh we just started talking about it and it was so easy to just like amend a couple things that I don't even know bothered either one of us anymore anyway but it was nice to like for me I got to acknowledge to him what I thought his contribution was and how huge it was and it wouldn't have been the same thing without it So that felt really good. So he and I stayed in touch Uh, after that session. I came back over there and we started writing together. And uh, this is that single, we wrote it together and then we produced it and then Rick mixed it. I was super pleased with the results and I think we're gonna continue to do that.
1: What was the impetus to kind of resurrect the Lions and Ghost moniker? Because you could have just put it out as your two names and those who know would know. But yeah. that's you're adding a weight to it by putting that name on it. Right.
2: It's it's funny because we just started writing a song. And I would say, you know, you were talking about earlier, like the guitar player that made that record, is he still the same guitar player now? Right. Basically. And I don't think so, but oddly, sitting next to Rick, I suddenly became that guitar <laughs> player again. And he started, you know, humming and singing and then he started working with some lyrical imagery. And so when it came time to do all the guitar bits, I did them all at my studio and I sent them to him and he put it all together. And he ended up doing a new vocal and sending it back to me. And it was, he sent it back to me and Rick, um, is a master at words, but sometimes says very few. And so when he sent the track back to me, he goes, strange, it sounds like flies and ghosts. And I I listened to it and I went, it just sounds just like something we would have done, you know, 30 years ago. So I it, we talked about it a bit and um, it seemed like it was a part of that catalog. So that's why I started, you know, I sort of got the ball rolling and I wanted to get this album re-released and find extra tracks. And, and also my manager, Jeff Keller, is at Alliance and goes Fan. That's how I met him years ago. And it doesn't hurt having somebody like Wendy on your shoulder who also supports and loves the music you used to do. So it just all kind of felt right. And it feels like it's part of that.
1: It must be nice. And it feel like sort of, I mean, you said righting all wrongs or previous wrongs and sort of closing that circle and getting back into that kind of comfortable pair of shoes of like, okay, we can do this, this... It's got to be nice to work with one of those people that you really early started collaborating with.
2: It was really therapeutic. Um, I, I always think music is, and it's funny, even outside of listening, music is therapeutic. And also, I don't know if it's writing all wrongs because there wasn't really any wrongs. We were growing and we were young men and we were experimenting with different kinds of music and different ideas, but it was nice after years to be able to look at somebody and tell them, Hey, this was amazing. And this at the time, I didn't really see what it was and it just felt good to like clear all that, all that weight, you know? Mm -hmm. And, um, I feel like there's probably still some more out there that I could clear, but, but in the case of meeting up with him and having that early journey together because at that time, it, you know, you didn't have the luxury of a full production bedroom studio. You didn't have the connection to record companies or anything. It was truly a lot of work to get signed. And because um, you know there was no tuning core, there was no whatever it was to release your own stuff at the time. So it was quite a journey and a lot of stress on a, a bunch of young guys so sometimes stress you know you understand what that does to people and it it was really nice to see him and to make music without anything nothing on it it was just purely like i have this idea and you really get back to the thing you had when you first met
1: Velvet Kiss, Lick of the Lime, the debut album from Lions and Ghosts, has just been reissued digitally, including new bonus tracks available right now wherever you get your music. And if that was enough, there is a brand new single available digitally as well. Girl, I love you.
0: You can check us out on all the various socials. Be sure to visit our website at rock'nrollgradschool.com and don't forget to leave us a review.
1: Today's show is produced by myself and Heidi Headquest. Our reluctant producers are John Sauvey and Sandy Stone. Our willing producers are Rachel Allen and Randy Jeanette. Our intern is Zach Jackson. This one's for Philippe thank you, good night and may all your favorite bands stay together)
2: Goodbye.